Chapter 22 of Football Days. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Football Days by William Edwards. Chapter 22. Lest We Forget. Marshall Newell. There's no hero of the past whose name has been handed down in Harvard's football traditions as that of Marshall Newell. He left many lasting impressions upon the men who came in contact with him. The men that played under his coaching idolized him, and this extended even beyond the confines of Harvard University. This is borne out in the following tribute, which was paid Newell by Herbert Reed, that was on the Cornell scrub when Newell was their coach. It is poignantly difficult, even today, years after what was to so many of us a very real tragedy, says Reed, to accept the fact that Marshall Newell is dead. The ache is still as keen as on that Christmas morning, when the brief news dispatches told us that he had been killed in a snowstorm on a railroad track at Springfield. It requires no great summoning of the imagination to picture this fine figure of a man, in heart and body so like his beloved Berkshire Oaks, bending forward, head down, and driving into the storm in the path of the everyday duty that led him to his death. It was, as the world goes, a short life, but a fruitful one, a life given over simply and without questioning to whatever work or whatever play was at hand. To the vast crowds of lovers of football who journeyed to Springfield to see this superman of sport in action in defense of his alma mater, he will always remain as the personification of sportsmanship combined with the hard, clean, honest effort that marks your true football player. To a great many others who enjoyed the privilege of adventuring a field with him, the memory will be that of a man strong enough to be gentle, of magnetic personality, and yet withal, with a certain reserve that is found only in men whose character is growing steadily under the urge of quiet introspection. Yet for a man so self-contained, he had much to give to those about him, whether these were men already enjoying place and power, or merely boys just on the horizon of a real man's life. It was not so much the mere joy and exuberance of living as the wonder and appreciation of living that were the springs of Marshall Newell's being. It was this that made him the richest poor man it was ever my fortune to know. The world about him was to Newell rich in expression of things beautiful, things mysterious, things that struck in great measure awe and reverence into his soul. A man with so much light within could not fail to shine upon others. He had no heart for the city or the life of the city, and for him, too, the quest of money had no attraction. Even before he went to school at Philip Exeter, the character of this sturdy boy had begun to develop in the surroundings he loved throughout his life. Is it any wonder, then, that from the moment he arrived at school he became a favorite with his associates, indeed at a very early stage, something of an idol to the other boys? He expressed an ideal in his very presence, an ideal that was instantly recognized and true and just, an ideal unspoken, but an ideal lived. Just what that ideal was may perhaps be best understood if I quote a word or two from that little diary of his, never intended for other eyes, but privileged now, a quotation that has its own little delicate touch of humor in conjunction with the finer phrases. There is a fine selection from Carmen to whistle on a load of logs when driving over a frozen ground. Every jolt gives a delightful emphasis to the notes, and the musician is carried along by the dictatorial leader, as it were. What a strength there is in the air. It may be rough at times, but it is true and does not lie. What would be the world if all were open and frank as the day or the sunshine? I want to record certain impressions made upon a certain freshman at Cornell, whither Newell went to coach the football team after his graduation from Harvard. Those impressions are as fresh today as they were in the scarlet and gold autumn years ago. Here is a man built like a bowl of a tree, alight with fire, determination, love of sport, and hunger for the task in hand. He was no easy taskmaster, but always a just one. Many a young man of that period will remember, as I do, the grinding day's work, when everything seemed to go wrong, when mere discouragement was gradually giving way to actual despair, when, somewhat clogged with mud and dust and blood, he felt a sudden slap on the back and heard a cheery voice saying, Good work today. Keep it up. 
Playing hard football himself, Newell demanded hard football of his pupils. I wish indeed that some of the players of today, who groan over a few minutes' session with the soft tackling dummy of these times, could see that hard sole leather tackling dummy swung from a joist that went clear through it and armed with a shield that hit one over the head when he did not get properly down to his work that Newell used. It was grinding work, this, but through it one learned. That ancient and battered dummy is stowed away, a forgotten relic of the old days, in the gymnasium at Cornell. There are not a few of us who, when returning to Ithaca, hunted up to do it reverence. Let him for a moment transfer his allegiance to the scrub eleven, and in that moment the varsity team knew that it was in a real football game. There were hard days indeed on the Percy field, but good ones. I have seen Newell play single-handed against one side of the varsity line, tear up the interference like a whirlwind, and bring down his man. Many of us had played in our small way on the scrub when, for purposes of illustration, Newell occupied some point in the varsity line. We knew then what would be on top of us the instant the ball was snapped. Yet when the heap was at its thickest, Newell would still be in the middle of it, or at the bottom, as the case might be, still working and still coaching. Both in his coaching at Harvard and at Cornell, he developed men whose names will not be forgotten while the game endures. And some of these developments were in the nature of eleventh-hour triumphs for skill and forceful, yet nonetheless sympathetic, personality. After all, despite his remarkable work as a gridiron player and tutor, I like best to think of him as Newell the Man. I like best to recall those long Sunday afternoons when he walked through the woodland paths in the two big gorges, or over the fields at Ithaca, in company much of the time with, not the captain of the team, not the star halfback, not the great forward, but some young fellow fresh from school, who was still down in the ruck of the squad. More than once he called at now one, now with another fraternity house, and hailed us. Where is that young freshman that is out for my team? I would like to have him take a little walk with me. And these walks, incidentally, had little or nothing to do with football. There were great opportunities for the little freshman who wanted to get closer to the character of the man himself. No flower, no bit of moss, no striking patch of foliage escaped his notice, for he loved them all, and he loved to talk about them. One felt returning from these impromptu rambles that he had been spending valuable time in that most wonderful church of all, the great outdoors, and spending it with no casual interpreter. Memories of those days and the sharp practice on the field grow dim, but these others, I know, will always endure. This I know because no month passes, indeed it is almost to say hardly a week, year in and year out, in which they are not insistently resurgent. Marshall Newell was born in Clifton, New Jersey, on April 2, 1871. His early life was spent largely on his father's farm in Great Barrington, Massachusetts, that farm and countryside which seemed to mean so much to him in later years. He entered Philip Exeter Academy in the fall of 1887 and was graduated in 1890. Almost at once he achieved, utterly without effort, a popularity rare in its quality. Because of his relation with his schoolmates and his unostentatious way of looking after the welfare of others, he soon came to be known as Ma Newell, and this affectionate sobriquet not only clung to him through all the years at Exeter at Harvard, but followed him after graduation whithersoever he went. While at school he took up athletics ardently, as he always took up everything. Thus he came up to Harvard with an athletic reputation ready-made. It was not long before the class of 94 began to feel that subtler influence of character that distinguished all his days. He was a member of the victorious football eleven of 1890 and of the winning crew of 1891, both in his freshman year. He also played on the freshman football team and on the university team of 91, 92, 93, and rode on the varsity crews of 92 and 93. In the meantime, he was gaining not only the respect and friendship of his classmates, but those of his instructors as well. Socially, and despite the fact that he was little endowed with the world's goods, he enjoyed a remarkable popularity. He was a member of the Institute of 1770, Dickey, Hasty Pudding, and Signet. In addition, he was the unanimous choice of his class for second marshal on class day. 
Many other honors he might have had if he had cared to seek them. He accepted only those that were literally forced upon him. In the course of his college career, he returned each summer to his home in Great Barrington and quietly resumed his work on the farm. After graduation, he was a remarkably successful football coach at Cornell University and was also a vast help at preparing Harvard 11s. His annual appearance in the fall at Cambridge was always the means of putting fresh heart and confidence in the Crimson players. He turned to railroading in the fall of 1896, acting as assistant superintendent of the Springfield Division of the Boston and Albany Railroad. Here, as at college, he made a profound personal impression on his associates. The end came on that evening of December 24th in 1897. In a memorial from his classmates and friends, the following significant paragraph appears. Marshall Newell belonged to the whole university. He cannot be claimed by any clique or class. Let us, his classmates, simply express our gratitude that we have had the privilege of knowing him and of observing his simple, grand life. We rejoice in memories of comradeship. We deeply mourn our loss. To those whose affliction has been even greater than our own, we extend our sympathy. This memorial was signed by Bertram Gordon Waters, Lincoln Davis, and George C. Lee, Jr., for the class, men who knew him well. Harvard men, I feel sure, will forgive me if I like to believe that Newell belonged not merely to the whole Harvard University, but to every group of men that came under his influence, whether the football squad at Cornell or the humble track walkers of the Boston and Albany. Remains, I think, little more for me to say, and this can best be said in Newell's own words, selections from that diary of which I have already spoken, and which set the stamp on the character of the man for all time. This, for instance. It is amusing to notice the expression in the faces of the horses on the street as you walk along. How much they resemble people, not in feature, but in spirit. Some are cross and snap at men who pass, others asleep, and some will almost thank you for speaking to them or patting their noses. And this, in more serious vein, happened to think how there was a resemblance in water in our spirits, or rather in their sources. Some people are like springs, always bubbling over with freshness and life. Other are wells and have to be pumped, while some are only reservoirs whose spirits are pumped in and there stagnate unless drawn off immediately. Most people are like the wells, but the pump handle is not always visible or may be broken off. Many of the springs are known only to their shady nooks and velvet marshes, but once found, the path is soon worn to them, which constantly widens and deepens. It may be used only by animals, but it is a blessing and comfort if only to the flowers and grasses that grow on its edge. Serious as this man was, there are glints and gleams of quiet humor throughout this remarkable human document. One night in May, he wrote, Stars and moon are bright this evening. Frogs are singing in the meadow, and the fireflies are twinkling over the grass by the spring. Tree toads have been singing today. Set two hens tonight. Nailed them in. If you want to see determination, look in a setting hen's eye. Robins have been carrying food to their nests in the pine trees, and the barn swallows fighting for feathers in the air. The big barn is filled with their conversation. In the city he missed, as he wrote, the lights upon the hills. Again, the stars are the eyes of the sky. The sun sets like a god bowing his head. Pine needles catch the light that has streamed through them for a hundred years. The wind drives the clouds one day, as if they were waves of crested brown. Where indeed in the crowded city streets was he to listen to the language of leaves, and how indeed feel the colors of the West. It is not possible that something more even than the example and influence of his character was lost to the world in his death. What possibilities were there not in store for a man who could feel and write like this? Grand thunderstorm this evening. Vibration shook the house, and the flashes of lightning were continuous for a short time. It is authority and majesty personified, and one instinctively bows in its presence, not with a feeling of dread, but of admiration and respect. 
It was in the thunder and shock and blaze of just such a storm that I stood not long ago among his own Berkshire hills, hoping thus to prepare myself by pilgrimage for this halting but earnest tribute to a grand-hearted gentleman, who in his quiet way meant so much to so many of his fellow humans. Walter B. Street W. L. Saltell of Williams, who knew this great player in his playing days, writes as follows. No Williams contemporary of Walter Bullard Street can forget two outstanding facts of his college career, his immaculate personal character and his undisputed title to first rank among the football men who Williams has developed. He was idealized because of his athletic prowess. He was loved because he was every inch a man. His personality lifted his game from the level of an intercollegiate contest to the plane of a man's expression of loyalty to his college, and his supremacy on the football field gave a new dignity to the undergraduate's ideals of true manhood. His name is indelibly written in the athletic annals of Williams, and his influence, apparently cut off by his early death, is still a vital force among those who cheered his memorable gains on the gridiron and those who admired him for his virile character. W. D. Osgood Gone from among us is that great old-time hero, Wynne Osgood. In this chapter of Thoroughbreds, let us read the tribute George Woodruff pays him. When my thoughts turn to the scores of fine, manly football players I have known intimately, Wynne Osgood claims, if not first place, at least a unique place among my memories. As a player, he has never been surpassed in his specialty of making long and brilliant runs, not only around, but through the ranks of his opponents. After one of his 70 or 80-yard runs, his path was always marked by a zigzag line of opposing tacklers just collecting their wits and slowly starting to get up from the ground. None of them was ever hurt, but they seemed temporarily stunned as though when they struck Osgood's mighty legs they received an electric shock. While at Cornell in 1892, Osgood made, by his own prowess, two to three touchdowns against each of the strong Yale, Harvard, and Princeton 11s and in the Harvard-Pennsylvania game at Philadelphia in 1894, he thrilled the spectators with his runs more than I have seen any man do in any other one game. But I would belittle my own sense of Osgood's real worth if I confined myself to expatiating on his brilliant physical achievements. His moral worth and gentle bravery were to me the chief points in him that aroused true admiration. When I as coach of the Penn's football team discovered that Osgood had quietly matriculated at Pennsylvania without letting anybody know of his intention, I naturally cultivated his friendship in order to get from him his value as a player, but I found that he was of even more value as a moral force among the players and students. In this way he helped me as much as by his play, because to my mind a football team is good or bad according to whether the bad elements or the good, both of which are in every set of men, predominate. In the winter of 1896, Osgood nearly persuaded me to go with him on his expedition to help the Cubans, and I have often regretted not having been with him through that experience. He went as a major of artillery, to be sure, but not for the title, nor the adventure only, but I am sure for the love of freedom and overwhelming sympathy for the oppressed. He said to me, The Cubans may not be very lovely, but they are human, and their cause is lovely. When Osgood, with almost foolhardish bravery, sat his horse directing his dilapidated artillery fire in Cuba, and thus conspicuous, made himself even more marked by wearing a white sombrero, he was not playing the part of a fool. He was following his natural impulse to exert a moral force on his comrades, who could not understand little but liberty and bravery. When the angel of death gave him the accolade of nobility by touching his brow in the form of a Mauser bullet, Wynne Osgood simply welcomed his friend by gently breathing, Well... A typical word of the man, and even in death is reported, continued to sit erect upon his horse. End of chapter 22, part A.